I have an idea for a more commercialized version of that. It's called Walmarters. Okay. <laughs> Ooh. You. And then Kmarters. Kmarters. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it's like we had one drink too many at the bar, and now we've just done something terrible. <laughs> this, is what, this is what happens. <laughs> now we have ruined French cinema. <laughs> oh, terrible. It feels like we're just, like, Pals, you guys want to hang out tomorrow? Yeah. Welcome to Speak All Evil, the podcast you were warned about. I'm Trent here with Kevin and Dave. Hello. 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 Follow us on Instagram at Speak All Evil Pod. This week, we are very excited to welcome two special guests to the show, Travis Stevens and Sarah Lind. Hi, guys. Hello, hello. Thank you so much for being here. We know Travis as the founder of Snowfort Pictures, the production company behind films like A Horrible Way to Die, Jodorowsky's Dune, Starry Eyes, We Are Still Here, and many more. Of late, Travis has turned to directing, having co-written and directed three feature films in a pretty short time, starting with The Girl on the Third Floor from 2019, Jacob's Wife from just last year, and now A Wounded Fawn, which just dropped on Shudder. We know Sarah from co-starring in A Wounded Fawn with Josh Rubin, who we just recently spoke to. We also know Sarah from Jacob's Wife, Wolf Cop, The Exorcism of Molly Hartley, The Humanity Bureau, Cold Blood, and a ton of other film and television credits. Travis, my first question to you would be, where did life begin for A Wounded Fawn? Well, thank you for the wonderful introduction first. Um, So uh, Nathan Faudry had written a script called The Furies. Uh, that was sent to me by um, my co-producers, uh, Lawrence and Joe. And it had the basic story. Uh, a guy invites a girl up to the cabin and and kills her and the Fury show up. And it was uh, a really intriguing premise for, for a movie. And I said, yeah, I mean, I, I'm interested in that. And let me uh, let me work on it and try to, you know, add some elements to it that uh, – feel like new ground to cover because uh you know i made three movies about men learning lessons and for the third one i wanted to find uh, bring some new elements to it and so everybody was gracious enough to allow that uh process to happen and i came back with this weird surrealist feminist art horror film travis you're working with josh who has done the writing acting directing and now you've got him just in this this role is as bruce and then sarah you're going up against josh who obviously has done all of this work how is the dynamic on set for a wounded fawn uh with all of you i mean sarah you have directing credits i mean all of you have done so many walks of life in film how does that work with a movie like this where everybody has sort of worn the same hat i mean between the three of us, it was just, I'm trying to come up with a metaphor, a greased something. I don't know. It was so easy. It was so smooth. Josh is the kind of person who like makes people start smiling he, when he walks into a room, even before they've seen him walk into a room, <laughs> he gets going, like the mood just picks up. He's just game for whatever. He's just a, a gift to, to set. Travis and I worked really well together. 
uh, we work really well together in life. And thankfully that translated to like, you know, professional work. I didn't even really feel like I was going up against Josh. Like we, he's, he's such a gracious person and like excellent collaborator that it was like, we're just doing this together. It was very, felt very simple to me. Would you agree, Travis? Yeah, Tra- Travis, I hope your your answer trashes on Josh a little bit more. We, really, we, we need to drag this guy. <laughs> but I just said, oh, no, sorry, go ahead. Oh, we don't all want to fight Josh, just Kevin. Yeah. I just want to point <laughs> Yeah, no, I just assumed um, whoever got to set first that day got to call the shots. So I tried to get there a little earlier than everybody else. But no, I mean, I think certainly on this movie, but maybe for all movies, I like working with people who can sort of look at problems from different perspectives. And so it was really exciting. Uh, I already had this sort of working relationship with Sarah because uh, she was so involved throughout the the rewrite process on the script. So I was bouncing ideas off of her and incorporating her perspective into the script. But Josh coming into the equation, like I, he's an incredible actor and, and, and I love his performance. But I, I have an equal admiration for his uh, writing ability and his directing ability and really wanted to sort of make something with with that full full person. Although we would not like the three of us go and huddle and say, okay, how should we shoot this scene? We would say, okay, what are we trying to accomplish in this scene? And everybody had the space to, to sort of, um, you know, feed into that. And, you know, it was a really good working relationship, I hope. Unless Josh said something else, in which case, oh, he said he said a bunch of crazy stuff. Yeah, you have to listen tomorrow. You have to listen tomorrow. Uh, Josh is a son of a bitch. Yeah. (laughs) Is this this how you get like more traffic to the podcast (laughs) by just like splitting up the films into two episodes so they have to? Well, I mean, this. I mean, it's new, but if it works, we're just going to keep going that way. (laughs) Very clever. It sounds like it was a, a situation where there there were no egos and you guys all worked you know collectively together. Um, I was interested, uh, Travis, that you were one of the producers of Yodorowsky's Dune, and I'm a huge Yodorowsky fan. Uh, I'd never seen him in an interview until this came out, and I was most fascinated by his enthusiasm talking about a failed project from 40 years ago. <laughs> like he was still pitching it. Like he still fully <laughs> believed in it. Uh, is there a script or a concept or an idea that you've had uh, that you'll never give up on? Wow, that's a great question. Um, I think in my case, I haven't found any uh, uh, sort of holy grail like that. I mean, I've been pretty fortunate that the the projects that I've cared about, I've been able to make in the relatively short time uh, as a writer director as a producer there's there's been i think other stuff that that hasn't come to fruition but it's a bit in a producer you get used to some of your children dying it's uh you're much more right. i don't know what kind of animal gives birth to a ton of kids and some of them die it's like that oh. animal which one I, all of I, them i think oh, uh, oh yeah <laughs> what are those things that jump off the cliff uh, the lemmings. they're like mice, lemmings, lemmings. yes, lemmings. Yeah. <laughs> well, whatever this tortured metaphor is, like it's it's a bit different. Like when you're, you know, when you've written and written and intend to direct the thing, obviously you probably have a much closer personal uh, investment in the material, and uh, you know. But I've I've been pretty blessed. But I I will say 
there is a little um, uh, homage to Yorosky in A Wounded Fawn, which is we had the pleasure of working with Leandro Taub, who was in Jodorowsky's Endless Poetry. So he plays nice. the person who's bidding against uh, Katie Horna. Oh, Kate wow. Horna in the opening auction. Wow, and I'm glad I asked that question. Yeah, well, I'm so grateful for him to, to to come on for such a small part. I think he's an incredible artist. And uh, I liked the, I mean, I've said this in other interviews, but like part of what I'm interested in now is is the movie we're making, sort of referencing and having conversations with other movies that sort of fall into that subgenre. And to be able to sort of, you know, because we were attempting to sort of explore surrealist art in this film, to t- be able to tie it to Alejandro's work in even a small surface way like that was uh, was exciting. Well, I realized how much of that uh, that documentary was just based on art. Um, you know, when the director of Drive was talking about having seen the film, it was just based on the artwork that surrounded all the artists that he gathered. Um, and I also wanted to add, uh, Sarah, that Lemming video is not real. I found that out recently. I was heartbroken. Like I, to me, that was inspirational when they all the lemmings jump off the thing, and they all die except like eleven out of like a thousand. I thought that was real. Well, I don't know. I don't know what uh, what video you're talking about. Um, I'll, I'll send it to you. It looks like a Nat Geo video. It's all these lemmings sacrificing themselves out of like stupidity. I don't know. I I just remember a game on like I think Nintendo called Lemmings. (laughs) You just like drop all your lemmings off a cliff, and then one day people were like, "Lemmings don't actually do that." It's folklore. Yeah, (laughs) that's what he. That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing now. That's what our show is now. Yeah. We're just Dave, telling Dave, people I, that viral videos aren't real. That's what we do. Dave, I yeah. think, um, Dave, I think you're more like accurately describing like the Atastupa scene from Midsummer. Yes, it's very much like that. <laughs> Travis, I absolutely loved that opening auction scene. That just pulled me instantly into the movie. Such a great opening scene to just grab uh, all the performances in that scene are amazing. The direction in that scene is amazing. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because I just wanted to tell you how how much of an immediate uh, um, immediate grab that scene is. Um, Sarah, it seems to me, it, just as a viewer, that the, the role of Meredith in A Wounded Fawn that you play, um, it seems like a, a different role to me than I've seen you in in the past. And I wondered if it seemed different to you or, uh, and also I wondered what was it specifically that attracted you to that, to the role of Meredith and what you might've done to prepare for that? Um. It did feel it did feel different, and maybe it was just because of the time in my life when I'm playing a character like this and the experience I'm able to to bring to it and the perspective. But one of the things that drew me to it that I think is unique, or or, or at least rare in my experience um, about Meredith and the script is that this isn't her first trial. You know, like this isn't she's she's not a naive going through her first um, sort of galvanizing experience. She just went through that and that happened and uh, and we see the very ending of it or the confirmation of its ending at the beginning of the movie. And so when she goes into this, she's coming from this place of experience and wisdom and she's not instinct injured. So she is tracking these things like, that was weird, what am I gonna do with it? I think I can let that slide, uh, but I'm not going to ignore it or I'm not not noticing it. And I'm also not sort of like reflexively continuing. She, she's choosing to 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 continue on this date for um, for, I think, 
justified reasons, but uh, obviously it's a mistake, but she's, you know, she's being conned. So like, what are you, what are you going to do when you come up against someone like that? Um, and I think it was sort of nice to revisit um, a, this isn't a slasher movie exactly, but you know, when I was younger doing horror movies, you're, you're the knight, you know, in the slasher, you just sort of like, ah, running and getting creamed or not, you know, at the end of the thing or throughout the thing. And so to come to this one older, to a character who's older as well was sort of a nice like progression, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I thought one of the things that I thought you did so well in in this role is is you portrayed Meredith. I felt like not as as naive, but so hopeful. There's a really palpable hopefulness in the way that she might not take all the red flags that start popping up. She's just there was something I thought really poignant and, and really affecting about the way you did that. Well, thank you, and I, th I think that's a really strong and brave position to come from and to try to maintain in as a person in the world, <laughs> you know, and I think it takes maturity and, and, uh, and, a, and a lot of self-work in whatever way that may look. So I wanted to give that to her. Trent, I'm glad you, um, both Travis and Trent, I'm glad you brought up the start of the movie with the auctioneer scene, because I know Travis and Sarah, you guys have had probably a thousand questions about the end scene. Uh, so Travis did what I think is sort of iconic in Jacob's wife with like the freeze frame scene at the end of that. Uh, and then you sort of have like CM Punk coming back in Girl on the Third Floor. And now this time you just go full on one take, one shot, unless Josh was lying. So let us know if he was because we want the world to know. <laughs> what I really started to feel watching it was like a really visceral reaction. And then I kind of like found myself in like the comedy realm. Like this is kind of hilarious. And then I found myself watching you, Sarah, and wondering what the hell it must've felt like to stand there for 11 straight minutes with a camera on you while you had to watch Josh. Uh, because honestly, no offense, Josh, Sarah, you were the star of that scene because just the patience it must have taken. And you must have felt so uncomfortable. I mean, you probably went through everything that everyone I, I, I imagine watching the movie goes through, which is, like I said, visceral, kind of funny. And now I just feel weird. Yeah, I um, it, I wasn't uncomfortable. Um, it was one of, it was a singular acting experience in my career. Josh and I were both stoked. Like how often do you get to just do one take for 11 straight minutes? And like, right. they're, they're, we didn't really discuss it. We knew what happens in the scene and then it's like, and, uh, go, you know? Um, so it was very fun, really exciting as an actor. And when, when we saw it, when I, when all of us saw it with an audience for the first time at Tribeca at the premiere. I was so thrilled to hear the audience go through those multiple phases of feelings because I went through it while I was watching him and there was tedium, there was like uh, irritation, there was laughter, there was like distraction, uh, you know, and you, you, there's four extra minutes that don't even make it into the movie from that, from that shot. Wow. Uh, there was grief, there was relief, there are all these things. And I think those are all appropriate and necessary reactions to violence, to um, the end of a harrowing ordeal, to um, 
to, to all, all of this, like you, you rarely walk away from something difficult being like, and that serves them right. And it's over. Like it carries on in, in the way that Mary Meredith's story is carrying on from a previous story that we don't get to see, you know, and it's only in, in stories that it like begins and ends. And I like that the audience is left with a like, Oh, right. There's like, it, it, it carries on. Travis, uh, over the summer, I went to the National Gallery of Art, and I had this revelation when I was there that 15th and 16th century Greek and Italian painters and sculptors invented horror, and you hardly ever see it. Um, I mean, Hannibal and like the Da Vinci Code, which is not a horror movie, but you you rarely see that influence on uh, horror. Are there any movies that... Uh, I don't know about that maybe uh, are in this genre that, uh, in, you know, encapsulates uh, the folklore behind a lot of these surrealist paintings. I think the lighthouse does a pretty overt example of it, like literally sort of right. mocking up the painting. Um, there must be others. I, I, it's something that I'm still d- discovering myself. And, you know, I think when I was younger and, and watching films, I didn't really understand like references, you know, you're just sort of watching the movie and taking it at face value. So like Peter Greenaway's the cook, the thief, his wife and her lover. Like, I was like, what is this? You know, and not really understanding like, well, no, it's, it's like theater meets film. Right. I was just sort of like, this is so unusual, like, but didn't have that sort of the reference point. So uh, it's something that I hope more filmmakers do because yeah. It feels, at least it felt for me that we're at this point where horror filmmakers are sort of regurgitating images from other horror films that they grew up with and sort of worship, which, you know, they're great films. But if we're only using the same sort of iconography from that time period, then we're just, uh, again, with another bad metaphor, it's just like we're, we're cloning. Our genes are going to get uh, mutated in a bad way. So, <laughs> right better to expand what your influences are yeah it's a refreshing influence for sure i've even seen you like we talked about yodorowsky and there's obvious you know we've talked about like the the cabin in the woods and the evil dead and his name's bruce and he ends up but i've even heard you talk about angst travis yeah and how does that influence a movie like this because i mean that's a deep cut yeah i mean i think with with all the movies the the three that i've written and directed are you know, subgenres. We got a haunted house, we got a vampire movie, we got a serial killer movie. So in part of me finding my own way through these, it's sort of, all right, well, let me sort of put together my 10 favorite ones and really sort of check in with myself. What do I what do I like that they're doing and what what do I want to make sure I don't do and all that. Uh and and angst I think is such a, a pure expression of that where the filmmaking is conveying that character's mental state in every single shot. And it's a lo-fi movie, but it is so visually uh, exciting because of how they're filming it. And I didn't realize how, what a heavy hand that the DP had and actually sort of constructing, he didn't just shoot the movie. It seems like he co-directed it based on what is out there about it. Um, so yeah, I mean it's a fucking great movie and people should see it. But you know, there's there's other you know American Psychos, 
a fantastic movie, you know, that we, we lift a little bit from and you just sort of pick the things you like and try to make a new meal with it and bring some of your own shit to it. Josh just, said, uh, Patrick Bateman in the, in the evil dead cabin. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, that sort of cold, you know, world that basically the idea of the movie is let's start in a, a, a cold modern world that Bruce is in control of or feels in control of. And then we will end in a movie that's naturalistic and 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 out of his control, organic. It's nature. And in between, we'll be in this cabin that is sort of like the transition point between those two worlds, this nice, clean, modern looking thing that is surrounded by the woods. But I think another thing for American Psycho that I really appreciated is the like she is telling you right from the opening credits that this is not reality in sort of how she's shooting the the meals and the, the credits are sort of going over that table. Um, and that's that's, again, like a, just another like uh, um, melody to sort of bring into this to this one that we're doing. Travis, you alluded to something earlier that I, I had been wondering. Is A Wounded Fawn the completion of a trilogy for you? I think so. <laughs> the other people involved in each of the movies, they'd be like, fuck you, man. Like, <laughs> but, you know, for me, I'm like, yeah, it's the it's the men learning things lesson. Yeah. Men, men yes. learning shit. And they all have um there are there are shared elements in each of those stories that I find amusing, uh, some more overt than others, but maybe in 20 years, somebody will look at those three movies together and be like, oh, this happens in each of them, and this happens in each of them. Does this mean that you're just going away from directing now? Like, Because we don't want that. Yeah, I mean, I figure I'm just going to let Josh Rubin and Sarah Lynn do the directing, <laughs> and I'll just hang out. Just go back to your producing. Just put your yeah. producer hat back on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah no no i i think um like with anything it's like uh i think for the next film you know maybe the guy doesn't need to be such uh, uh a flawed human being maybe the guy could be a good person <laughs> and let's see what kind of story we do with that uh but yeah just just trying i mean everything i think of and do tends to be fucked up and fits into a genre space so it's not like I'm going to go and do a Disney plus star Wars series or anything. So you will see more chaotic nightmares. <laughs> Sarah. Um, I believe that Trent recommended Wolf cop to me a long time ago. And even as just a movie goer or a movie cinephile, whatever, when someone recommends Wolf cop to watch, it's like really like I Wolf Cop, like it's good. And it's like, yeah, it's really good. And I watch it and I'm like, oh my God, this is great. This is like an ultimate, like low budget magic. But on paper, it looks terrible. Yes, yes. <laughs> Travis is holding up a copy of the Blu-ray. On, on paper, this looks terrible. I mean, even just Trent saying, watch this movie. I'm like, I don't know if I want to take, you know, an hour and a half well, to watch just Wolf the Cop. Name, just the name Wolf Cop. <laughs> right. So yeah. when this script came to you, um, how did you react? I mean, what was your first instinct uh, with this? Uh, I was like, this is 
ridiculous, <laughs> <laughs> which in my opinion is a good thing. Um, right. It was really funny. And I was like, I'll, I'll finally get to play a femme fatale kind of character, but she's also a like alien mutant thing or whatever. But so it was, it was fun sort of um, getting to play a bit of a cartoon character with that. Um, after it came out, there was a, a review in a German magazine or in a German newspaper, and the the title of the article was "Ist es ein Wolf? Ist es ein Kopf? Nein, es ist Wolfkopf." And I'm like, "Absolutely, that's, that's all I need to know." Yes. <laughs> My favorite line. Of- <laughs> I, I, we recently did an episode on bestiality. And I found this site that referenced every movie ever. And it went from like Beauty and the Beast to like Labette. And I was like scrolling through, I'm like, oh, it's Sarah. Oh, <laughs> oh we just talked about that. Yes. Oh, uh, oh my God. God. Holy shit. <laughs> wow. Travis just held up a copy of Labette, which uh, caused a, a, a certain amount of controversy on our podcast because we we were talking about what was the movie that you paired? Oh, it was uh, the death, death of Dick, Dick Long. Long? Not a horror movie, <laughs> but we kind of paired them together. Dave brought in Labette, and I was like, "We can't talk about this movie on the show." Travis, we're going to have to do a speed round where we just start talking about movies that we've covered on the show and see how quickly you can pull a copy off the shelf. Because right now you're two for two. Uh, Travis, I love the soundtrack in A Wounded Fawn. And mm. I I pride myself on being able to chase down a song based on a very a small clip of the song. Um, so I was able to chase down Cubby and the Blizzards. And... Um, that's the name of the band, right? No. L- LSD got a million dollars. That's not. That's not that. Uh, uh, Manfred Mann. I mean, maybe, maybe there was it must a, be a cover version of it. Okay, because yeah, okay, because I found Cubby and the Blizzards are like a European band from 1964 <laughs> that did LSD got a million dollars. Maybe he. But, maybe because back then. While a song was a hit, other bands yeah, yeah. would do other versions of it, and they would be out at the same time. Okay. Well, I almost got it then. Uh, I, you're, you're, the one I couldn't. Well, I would get the one I I cannot find is this the song that's playing while Meredith is packing. I get the message. Yeah, the Tammies. The Tammies. Uh, the Tammies. Yeah, uh, yeah, written by Leo Christie. And I don't know what their career was, but Leo Christie's been like a songwriter for since back in the day, like boy band in the 60s, I guess, and is still performing now. And I don't know if they were a group he put together or, or whatever. It feels very, um, I'm going to say Phil Spectory, which I was not the negative too. connotations, but, you know. <laughs> I mean, so when, I this is know. horror. He kills people. It's okay. <laughs> yeah, it's a safe yeah, place. Exactly. Now, now I've just like burned my Leo Christie relationship. But, uh, Leo Christie. Okay. Yeah. And that was that was the, uh, my co-editor had, had brought that up. And what I wanted to do with the songs in this is each one of them is overtly commenting on what's happening in the movie. Just right. like everything that the characters are seeing is, is subjective or everything we're showing the audience is subjective from the character's eyes. I wanted these needle drops to literally be saying what's happening right. in the movie. Uh, so that was a, it was fun sort of finding different, different things could, could achieve that. Well, and, and to go just beyond the music, Travis, the sound design on all of your movies is so refreshing 
And we, I, I mentioned this to Josh and he mentioned uh, Jose Ramirez. And yeah. I know that he was part of a, you know, 10 person crew, but this movie seemed to have minimal ADR. It just sounded like very in the moment. And like, like even like what Trent already said from the auctioneer scene, it just sucked you in because it felt like you were there. And I'm curious, like how you approach your sound design uh, in your films, because uh, like I said, it's just very refreshingly honest. This is uh, like one of my favorite interviews ever, because you guys keep on bringing up shit that Sarah and I really like. Well, <laughs> and, 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 and I'm going to I'm going to get to Daniel Martin, too. So like, just like, let, let, we'll, we'll keep going. What I what I discovered, meaning like what I learned back on We Are Still Here was I think the quality that made those 1970s horror films so scary for me was the lack of sound happening. Yes. And just like when Pro Tools came out and every band recording in their bedrooms could layer 36 tracks on a song, that was what I felt was happening in modern horror films, where we were literally layering in a bunch of extraneous stuff, which is the audience's ears are getting like overwhelmed with just extemporous noise. That's not important. You watch it like a giallo film, you watch Herzog's Nosferatu, you can't hear a fucking thing. And then when that character takes one step and you hear that footstep, your heart goes. <gasps> and so that's basically been my approach ever since, which is to let's strip everything away. And I don't want to hear anything unless it has an emotional, uh, uh, value or we need the information and then once you've stripped all that away you can start using the sounds as sort of uh, punctuation marks to sort of move you through a scene to create a moment in a scene to 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 amp something up that's not quite there or to transition uh, out of the scene and, and the that's gang uh, at sound department got it they understood the memo and they executed it beautifully the, the punctuation mark uh, that's a great description of exactly what it accomplishments. It, it's it literally just ends the sentence. I love that. There was certainly a lot of punctuation uh, sound wise on the scene where Bruce is standing over the sink. Perhaps uh. <laughs> one, one example where the ellipses wow. uh, could have been just a period. I was like, <laughs> man, no joke about the sound design on this movie. It's. I'm gonna show that to my daughter. We, we, you should yeah. be ashamed of yourself. I see. I see you over the. Yeah. Well, uh, hopefully not followed by Labette. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think in our final mix, maybe that went one notch too loud. No, <laughs> no, no. Oh, Labette, Labette levels. <laughs> um, Travis, as as a director and like just watching everything that you do, you pulling out the hard copies of movies as we, as we reference them. You're obviously a hardcore nerd. I love that. Uh, we are too. And, you know, a lot of times we are very uh, disappointed by some of these directors in the mainstream that aren't fans of horror. And they can obviously tell that you both are huge fans of horror. You know what you're talking about. Uh, you understand it from its origins. It might seem trite, but what's your favorite horror movie? Both of you guys. Um, I, I never want to say The Exorcist because... It's just one of the best movies 
of all of any genre. But I, of course, I love that movie. I think my like pet favorite movie is Session Nine. Oh wow! Oh, okay, deep cut. Yeah, I've seen it so many times, and and whenever I recommend it to people, not whenever, but sometimes I recommend it to people, and they're like, oh. Yeah. yeah, it's truly scary. It's one of the yeah, only truly, truly scary movies. With, with so by doing so little, like when that guy is running through, running down the hall, and the lights are just going off behind him. Mm-hmm. I, in my mind, oh, I love that movie. So yours? Well, I mean, Session Nine's like the perfect answer. So. Oh, okay. <laughs> I mean, wow, we haven't covered no. that yet. We should. Yeah, are you guys, are you guys fighting? I mean, give us an <laughs> honest, honest answer, no. Travis. He's such an instigator. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's it's a, I so I was having this conversation last night at a I watched a movie with some friends and we were sort of what are your top five horror films and and as everybody went through them and it's you know The Exorcist, The Thing, The Fly, The Shining, The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Uh, All three of them. That one. Yeah. yeah, I mean it's it's perfect, and then it it's almost kind of like well, what mo- what are you in the mood for emotionally? You know, because each one is sort of offering a different thing. So it's yeah, it's it's one of those things where it's like hard to say the favorite one when there's so many out there that are doing what they're doing so so well. Nice dodge. <laughs> I know he's so young, okay? okay. <laughs> I like the conjuring your universe. Annabelle. <laughs> oh god. Oh god. Yep. Yeah. Uh meeting over. Don't get us in trouble, yeah. Um Sarah, it was I think it was 2018 or 2019 you did a movie called The Humanity Bureau where you co-star with Nick Cage, a much darker movie than I was expecting. A very, it's, it's billed as a, as a sci-fi thriller. Um, I would call it maybe more of a, a dystopian horror movie. I was not expecting it to be so unrelentingly bleak and, and brutal. I, I have to ask you what it was like working with Nick Cage because most of the movie is just you and Nick Cage. Yeah, I was so excited. I was too excited. Uh, and I was like, um, you you know, like when a dog's really excited, it wags its tail like crazy, and you're like, okay, maybe it's acting weird, but its tail is going so crazy, uh, it's excited. And when you try to hide how excited you are and your <laughs> tail move, then your body's just flapping around, and no one knows what that means. And that's basically how I was around the whole time. I wish that it, I had had a better time, but I was just, I just couldn't stop freaking out, basically. Yeah, I bet. <laughs> so courteous. He was so prepared and professional and, like, efficient. We we um, weren't expecting the coldest temperatures in 100 years. When we went out to shoot there, it, we were expecting it to be really hot. <laughs> and there was snow, and it was, like, minus 25 degrees Celsius. So it was, like shoot the scene and run back into the vans because it's just, it's just bitterly, bitterly cold. Wow. Okay. Did you, how many takes on the slap where you just slap Nicholas Cage? Really? It looks like really hard. <laughs> I mean, as you'd expect, he was like, do it for real. Like, can you go hard? <laughs> which, was, which was great. Um, yeah. The, there was a moment I, I brought my Akira t-shirt to set because I knew he loves Akira. And then one day I, I wore it to set and we were wrapped at the same time. And I like got ready really quick and waited outside the AD trailer with my coat open, freezing, just so we'd see the Akira shirt so that we could have something to talk about. He comes out, he says goodbye. And then he's like, oh, notices my shirt. Akira, I love that movie. And I was just like, yeah, it's cool. And walked away. <laughs> <laughs> 
I regret it so Classic. much. I wish I Classic. Yeah, exactly. That's kind of how we feel tonight. Like I know. That's like, I know. When you were describing the dog. dog wagging, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. You're big fans. Travis and Sarah, I wanted to talk about the amount of practical effects that are in a wounded fawn and Daniel Martin. I had never heard of Daniel Martin. However, he did effects for Possessor, Colorado Space, speaking of Nick Cage, Host, the random pandemic movie, Lords of Chaos that we've talked about on this show. I mean, Censor that we loved on this show, In the Earth. Uh, but where do you find these people? Because they're just so good at what they're doing. And I love the people that commit to like these practical effects and everything that that, that you're putting on display for us. Yeah, I mean, uh, I had seen his work without knowing it, but really he came into our sort of circle through a producer on the first movie I made called Girl on the Third Floor, uh, Greg Newman, who had seen his work in, he had just seen uh, Lords of Chaos. And was like, well, what about this guy? And he sent me the clip. And I was like, holy shit. Yeah, because we had a a similar uh, gag. And it turned out that Dan knew a bunch of, we had a bunch of mutual friends. And if you think he's an amazing human being based on his work that you've seen on screen, just wait until you actually meet him. Because he's even better in person. He is one of the the most uh, knowledgeable um, uh, sort of cynist. Is that the word? Cynist? Cynist? Yeah. He watches a fuck lot of movies. He's got a <laughs> podcast. He's got a podcast on. He's the, he does the Arrow Video podcast okay. with Sam Ashurst. And what I love about that podcast is just two guys who love movies talking about movies. And even if they don't like a movie, they're so positive about everything that you leave the episode being like, oh man. Well, I'm going to watch that thing, even though it's probably terrible. Right, um, right, yeah. That's what we're and, trying to do. Yeah. yeah. No, I'd and, love to meet him. Uh, what's his phone number? I have a... <laughs> yeah. He's, he's right now, I mean, he did a, a... He just did Brandon Cronenberg's new movie. He just did a, a new movie called Horoscope for MGM. He's doing our buddy uh, Evan Katz, who did Cheap Thrills. He's doing his new movie, uh, uh, Zale, written by uh, Simon Barrett, who wrote uh, The Guest and You're Next, and yeah. Uh, nice. Seance. Uh, anyways, so he's great. But to get back to it, like we, I think, you know, we've all talked about, you know, our favorite horror films and what do they all have in common? They have great practical effects. And I think that's something that, you know, we, we are at least aiming for. And there is something about having the thing in front of you and have the actors having the either the appliance on or the thing to act against or or the mechanical uh gag that makes it more real and and I think it it, it helps make the movies uh grounds the movies and a bit because you can actually see it like I, I I have respect for people who can sort of work fully in the digital realm but I think for what we're interested in doing having that tactile uh quality is something that's really important. Sarah, I'm I'm guessing that a wounded fawn, probably a little bit less heavy lifting than Molly Hartley, but there were still some pretty great effects that you had to deal with. And I know that like halfway through the movie, you sort of disappear and then you come back with a mask. Um, you get to have like a Britney Spears moment with a bunch of snakes. So I'm guessing you still had a bunch of fun on this one. 
Oh yeah, it was great. Um, it, it's always fun when you get a chance to sort of like return to the way it used to feel like play as a kid, like doing a play as a kid. So like wearing a mask and being a like embodying an archetype, fun. Like you know, really primary colors kind of acting was really really fun. Um, and with the practical effects, like everyone on the day is able to collaborate with them and take inspiration from them and interact with them and and lend extra life to it because it's right there and if it's like okay so just like running whatever or and this isn't to disparage anyone because it's a it's a great skill to be able to for everyone who makes things with cg but um if you can't see it it's hard to to get excited to get ideas about it you know so you're you're trying to figure out what to do but there you're not getting to interact with it in the moment and if you can see the the like wood stove dick snake puppet then you're like you know what it would be cool uh, if i fight it like this <laughs> like uh if i did oh it, it looks like a dick okay so then i'm gonna interact with it in this way that i get an idea you know and so it makes it all more fun um and snakes are great so it was nice to <laughs> you just lost so many marvel roles in that one no, I'm not yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they're gonna dig this Travis, you uh, you introduced me to the work of Lenora Carrington through this movie. Um, the Wounded Fawn begins with a, a quote attributed to Lenora Carrington, who I, I hadn't heard of. And the quote is is so dark and weird. I, I had to look it up. And it turns out the, the quote was from uh, her time spent involuntarily committed to an asylum. This was a, a surrealist artist who died, I think, 2011 uh, at 94. But she left this amazing legacy of work, and, and I ended up stumbling upon the painting Operation Wednesday, which has, like, the two weird surgeon guys from A Wounded Fawn in it. And I'm curious how you know her work, how you discovered it, and how and when you made the decision to bring that into A Wounded Fawn. Yeah, I mean... The work of the female surrealist has been uh, sort of not necessarily rediscovered, but repackaged and represented to contemporary audiences. So there's been some traveling exhibits of Dorothea Canning and Lenora Carrington, uh, Katie Horna, some of the other ones that in my understanding during the time when they were creating the bulk of their work, their work was often overshadowed by the their male contemporaries, either their romantic partners or, uh, you know, back in the day, just the male artists were considered real artists and the female artists were considered hobbyists, you know, especially when it came to, to things that would require, you know, like imagination, you know. And, and so for me, as I'm trying to make a new piece of art, there seemed to be an interesting parallel between the dynamic between uh, a serial killer and what he takes from his female victims and sort of what uh, was happening to these female artists as their male artists uh, were sort of consuming their energy and, and, and uh, opportunities. So that was the sort of operating thesis, creative thesis for it. And then it was a way to sort of, like we had talked about earlier, it's like you want to find new uh, imagery to sort of incorporate into your work and sort of introduce a, an audience to stuff. So it seemed like, oh, well, here's an opportunity to introduce uh, a horror audience to some fine art, 
that maybe they didn't know about. And so to just like you sort of did a little research on Lenora Carrington, that's what I hope is that this movie uh, has these uh, little little doors that, that people will open up and go and discover uh, another world of art that this movie's only just sort of referencing. Yeah, I mean, it, it doesn't take a whole lot to twist my arm and get me to go down the Greek mythology road or like Trent said, like open a movie with a quote that I now need to go down a rabbit hole and discover how much of that Greek mythology played into the script writing. Because it's interesting, like you talked about Nathan Fowdry, who, by the way, my wife and I just finished The Watcher, which I know he wrote an episode of and I thought was fantastic, but he largely has a pretty like sparse background. I'm just so curious, like when you're working with co-writers and you're pulling in things like a postmodern artist and like the Greek mythology thing and working with other people. Um, and then ultimately, where the hell does the red owl come into this? Well, my, my experience so far with um, my co-writers is a project will come to me and then I will do my my version of it. So it's not like we're we're sending the script back and forth. Uh, part of why the, the the movie sort of incorporated these surrealist artists is because in trying to find a way to sort of bring the Aranaeus into uh, sort of a contemporary setting that made sense, I was like, I don't think I care about them as literal goddesses of vengeance. I am more interested in them as symbolic goddesses of vengeance and so if they're going to be symbolic characters and not literal characters then well maybe this whole movie could be uh uh, uh using symbolism which is sort of why the, the surrealist element seemed to make sense so you know because i didn't i'm not a classics major or anything so i had to sort of okay watch uh and read uh about the Aranaeus and and look at paintings and see how other artists have sort of utilized them as characters. And what I found interesting was there's an aspect to them is sure. They're like the Cenobites where you can call them into the world, but they also are, they're not like going to kill the person. They're just trying to get the person to sort of uh, be accountable for their actions. And that seemed something that uh, was really relevant and interesting for, you know, 2022 which is what does justice look like and what does, um, uh, you know, punishment look like or what do we look, what do we want from the people uh, who have wronged us? Um, and so all of it sort of, I think, I think on this particular one, uh, the universe sort of presented these different ideas and, and they all seem to line up in a, in a pretty intuitive way rather than a, uh, a more like, intellectual approach where it's like this is going to happen and then this is going to happen and here's why and speaking of the Irenaeus uh we we haven't even talked about Malin Barr uh who was in Honeydew with Minnie Spielberg she I thought that she did a great job honestly Travis I thought it was interesting and for you Sarah like you were so prominent in the first half of the film and then you kind of go away and Josh is sort of like going through his ordeal and you know obviously Malin's role in the beginning and at the end is very different how do you manage pacing a film like that where you're pulling characters kind of in and out so much and, and hold it together like you did because I think it's brilliantly done I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I don't like, like there was, I mean, I think in the sort of 
in order to reference the the mythology at the Greek mythology aspect of this story, the idea of doing a two act structure seemed to make sense, you know, like a Greek play. And so, okay, it's a two act structure. And then, okay, so what if we see act one through Meredith's size and act two through Bruce's eyes? Um, that, that seemed to sort of make sense. Um, when, you're talking to an actor, and, and Sarah, you can speak more to this, but as a filmmaker, you understand that each paint on your palette that you're going to put on the canvas is equally important, even if there's more blue and, and, and red than there is uh, uh, you know, yellow. Even if there's only a little dab of yellow, that little dab of yellow is just as important as, as the, the other two colors. And so when I talk to actors, I hope they understand like, hey, you may disappear for this, but the function your character serves in this story is, you know, pivotal to the story sort of working. And Malin, you know, was incredibly gracious. You know, I think her question was, once I'm electo, am I in dog form for the whole movie? You know, which I thought was a valid question uh, because, you know, she wasn't as interested in acting like a dog head. For the film and i think budget wise nor was i um <laughs> so i mean it's i think you just like whether or not those sort of screenwriting decisions work for everyone in terms of characters coming in and out and what they represent uh so far it's made sense to me and that's the best i can do but sarah how, how do you feel about characters having such dramatic transformations or dramatic exits and entrances into the narrative the entrance of Tisiphone in this movie is one of the most glorious movement moments i've ever had in my career so like <laughs> that's so awesome rad. um and i think it's clear the purpose of your character and why they are or aren't there in the script and through your text analysis and it's just part of the part of the story you know you know, there are some actors who are like, I've counted my lines and I counted my number of scenes and they are not as many as the <laughs> and like not all actors who work that way. <laughs> well, guys, uh, I could talk to each of you all night. I, I realize you probably don't have that much time. Prove it, Sarah. Well, hey, we can go. go. I'm, I'm just go. trying. I'm just trying to have some mercy now. Well, hold on, there's still two other guys here, so don't get too excited. Yeah. Sarah, what what's on the horizon for you, and what are you looking for that you haven't had a chance to do yet? Um, I have a movie coming out from Canada. They have a small part in called uh, Island Between the Tides that should be out this spring, or um, you, you know they're aiming for the for the festivals. Uh, there's a couple things, sort of like in the water, that I'll hopefully get to announce soon. I'm excited about a fundraising project I'm working on and agonizingly slowly writing a, a short film for me to direct. So. Nice. Wow. Okay, cool. Nice. Why is it so hard just to like sit down and write? Because <laughs> <laughs> the pandemic's over and you're on a massive press tour for uh, Wounded Font. <laughs> Really gracious uh, answer, <laughs> <laughs> um, Travis. I know we're we're here for a wounded fawn, but I'm curious if if you have uh, a, a directorial project in mind next, or a production project, or what might be on the horizon for you. There's a bunch. Uh, I, I who knows what'll 
be the next movie, but I, I think um, I just feel really happy to be um, at a point in my life to be working with people that I, I really like and respect and, and am inspired by and whatever movie ends up uh, happening. I know those people will be involved in it. So. Well, A Wounded Fawn is out now on Shutter. You can keep keep up with Travis at snowfort-pictures.com, just like it sounds, snowfort-pictures.com. And I know you guys are both on social media too. So keep up with Travis and Sarah both. I'm sure we will um, be seeing more of them. You guys have been so gracious, so yes. wonderful. Thanks. It's been such a great time talking to you both. We really appreciate the time you spent with us here. You reminded me of a lot of our friends. Like I felt very at home like you guys are some of our friends. And I'm really psyched you guys are making such great movies uh, with integrity and depth and that you'll come and talk with us about them. Oh, this is an absolute treat. And and likewise, it feels like we're just like pals. <laughs> you guys want to hang out tomorrow? Yeah. Yeah. But don't invite Josh. No Josh, never Josh. (laughs) To to Josh's credit, he did say uh, we asked him all these uh, mythology, theology kind of questions, and he diverted it all to you. All to Travis. Yeah. Yeah. He said he knows nothing. You read the books and you proved it tonight. So thanks. What a case ass. Politician. All right, let's try one more movie. Let's, you guys, you guys, okay. you guys, name one more movie, and we'll see if we have it. Oh, uh, Maniac uh, Cop. Maniac Cop. No. Oh, oh stumps. Bye bye. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Guess we're not friends. Night of the Demons. Night of the Demons. Yes. No. That would be no. This is a no. You should make a Bigfoot movie. Okay. Wait. Wait. Think about it. Wait. Wait. Martyrs. I, I had a hard time with martyrs. Ooh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Yeah, Sarah I'm, wants I'm, to see it. It's bad. Well, but. I don't think I do. No, you don't. You, well, you do until you do. Until, yeah. Yeah. I have an idea for a more commercialized version of that. It's called Walmarters. Okay. <laughs> Ooh. Dude. And then Kmart. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's like we had one drink too many at the bar and now we've just done something terrible. <laughs> this is what this is what happens. <laughs> now we have ruined French cinema. Oh, terrible. Well, oh man. Thank thank you guys so much. And, and we'll shoot you the link when the when the episode posts in about two weeks. Yeah, Please do, and we will awesome. hype the hell out of you guys. guys. Okay, yeah. thank you guys. Have a good night. Have a good night. See ya. <laughs> Woo! I love, Kevin, I love how Kevin just goes out with the guests. It's gone, yeah. It's just gone with the wind. Well, uh, no uh, no post-show beers tonight. Uh, no, COVID. Quarantine. Your eye looks Your eye looks good, by the way. In, in that light, oh. you can't even tell. Yeah, I kind of I have the light coming from this side. This this is the eyes. Yeah, I, I was thinking you'd have to explain it to them at the beginning why you're disfigured, but you can't you can't no, tell at all. It's better now. It's better now. But yeah, it like looks fine. Cut my eye.